Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And welcome to Bound by the Cloak. So we've got a good one for you guys today. We tracked down renowned private investigator Sheila Waisaki to discuss the events that inspired her to go down a crime-fighting path, what it takes to be a private investigator, and the side of her work that most people don't get to see. Sheila has worked on some well-known cold cases, such as the Lauren Agee case and the Jonathan Cruz case. But what was the case that inspired Sheila to pursue this lifelong path of justice? Well, in October 1984, 20-year-old college student Angela Samoda was brutally murdered. And Sheila was Angela's best friend and roommate. Sheila kept searching tirelessly for answers from the Dallas Police Department about who murdered Angela. She never got anywhere. And after 25 years, Sheila became a private investigator and continued her search to find Angela's murderer. So let's get into it. Sheila, thank you for being on our show. If you could um, introduce yourself. My name is Sheila Wysocki, and I'm a private investigator that specializes in cold cases. I generally work for victims' families. I became a private investigator because my college roommate had been raped and murdered and brutally murdered in the 80s, and the case went cold. So in 2004, I became a private investigator to work on her case and see if we could find who murdered her. We did. 2010, we went to trial and I referred to this man as the beast. So the beast was convicted of capital murder in Texas and he is now on death row I don't care if he's ever put to death or not, but I'm glad he's off the street. And so that was a defining moment in your life. So can you tell us what were the steps that you took to become a private investigator? When I was in college, we did not know there were bad people. We did not know that there were people that would actually take your life. We didn't have the 24-hour news cycle. Of course, now it's not unusual to hear about a mass shooting or somebody being murdered. Back then, it was very rare. Plus, we went to a private university in a very nice area. Again, not somewhere you would expect anything bad to happen. So when it happened, it was so shocking to my world that it basically took all that innocence away. So when I made the decision to work on Angie's case, I lived in a gated, guarded community. That was part of the neuroses of my life. I like security and I like being in a community with gates and security guards. The head of security and I were talking one day and I told him about my roommate and I said, you know, I really want to work the case. The police are blowing me off. What do you suggest? He goes, we'll sponsor you. You'd be great as a PI. From that moment on, he and I are still friends. I still see him, but he sponsored me to be a private investigator. He taught me how to shoot. I have pictures of me shooting with him in this field. And when I learned to shoot, 
I had no gun knowledge at all. Zero. Even though being from Texas, you think everybody carries a gun. (laughs) Not everybody carries a gun. So I kept practicing. The worst part, though, is I didn't know you were supposed to put a gun down. And I would turn and look at him and he'd be like, whoa, (laughs) I learned quickly after he taught me how to shoot and taught me the safety measures. He then went through and taught me how to be a PI. From him, I learned from a Los Angeles police officer, former police officer, and then a Detroit, Michigan police officer. So I went through the process of people that knew the system to teach me. And I'll tell you, from LA to Detroit, they were polar opposites of training. The Detroit police officer and he was a former one then, he was flat out honest. He would tell you the bad stuff, whereas the LAPD police officer would be like, well, you know, this and that. He would make excuses. I learned not every police officer is alike. I learned that their perceptions are different based on what they do. One's a beat cop, one was a homicide detective. And they have unbelievable stories that they should write down. And I've said that for years. So, but they told me the techniques and things. And I took that and I translated it into my own business. That's amazing. Because I was really going to, my next question for you was going to be, was your experience in becoming a PI a standard one? But it seems like it would vary for everyone across the board. It does. And especially now. Now, one thing I do know, and I still think it's true today, is there are different techniques based on level of experience. There's also different techniques based on gender. I believe that when interviewing, watching the Detroit police officer versus the L.A. police officer, they both had very different styles, but the basics were very much across the board. So I learned the basics and then I adapted being a female and talking to witnesses. And that's the thing I love the most is talking to people and hearing their stories. I love that. Everybody has their niche in my group. Talking to witnesses is mine. I wonder how does investigating a case differ for private investigators versus law enforcement? Law enforcement have a tin, it's a badge, and they can walk in and get what they want. Private investigators have to be a little more scrappy and generally try to get the trust of the witness. You don't have a choice when the police officer shows up. That's true. You just don't. Hmm. So do you think people are generally more trusting towards private investigators than law enforcement? So law enforcement... They don't like PIs, but but the public, I would think that I just don't have problems with the public. You know, I go in and talk to them. And if I'm wrong about something, I want whoever it is to tell me. I'll correct it. But I think, I think yes, and especially females. I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to get the truth and move on. 
And I think it's interesting how the media portrays private investigators in a certain light, in a negative light. That's not only from law enforcement's perspective, but also from the perspective of the public, which shows that private investigators are seen negatively and that they're meddling in people's businesses and that they're being where they shouldn't be. So can you talk to us about that? That's a great observation because that's, I understand how Hollywood presents private investigators. It is interesting to me to watch some of the shows and look at what they portray a private investigator would do. Most ethical private investigators I know would never do anything underhanded. We all make mistakes. There are private investigators that make mistakes, but there are private investigators that have crossed the line. And I'll use Michael Jackson's case where one of them somehow was able to listen to phone calls. Now there are laws about that. I don't know where you thought that was a good idea. When did you think, oh, let me listen to somebody else's phone call? And get away yeah, with it. I was, <laughs> was going to say, like, you know, when you do watch these shows, a lot of times they're they're doing things that I would think might be kind of questionable. Or I, I would be concerned about somebody's looking through my garbage or somebody's, you know, I mean. Oh, so it's, let's it's, talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I can look through your garbage as long as it's not on private property. So I have gone through dumpsters and I have <laughs> taken some trash. Okay. Long time ago when I first started, but not today. There are things that when I first started, I was like, oh, this is so cool until you get (laughs) it garbage. Yeah. Not so cool. You know, and who are the guys going to send in when they're teaching you how to do it? Not them. You're Mm -hmm. the one putting on the plastic gloves going through everything. Some of the things that we do see private investigators do are actual things that they would really do. And then some things do kind of cross the line and go too far. I work with investigators. Of course, we're on the side of like victims' families or people that are being victimized. I will not take a cheating spouse. I get calls every once in a while and it's a friend of a friend and I'm, I won't do it. But here's my thing. If you think your spouse is cheating, the answer most likely is yes. If you're going through a divorce, start protecting yourself. If you need video of them cheating, okay. We had a case in Texas. There was a private investigator in Houston that his client got the information where the husband was. And I'm not sure. I can't remember the details. It was so long ago. He either texted or told her. Y'all, you never tell a spouse where another spouse is when they're cheating because there will be a confrontation. And I believe the husband was run over several times and died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those are common sense things. So our, you know, we go to conferences, people tell stories. You don't share that information with your client. And sometimes you get information that you don't share with them. You'll turn it over to the attorney. Let's talk about you talking to the witnesses. That is talking about dispelling myths or misconceptions about private investigators. That's not something you hear, that private investigators actually want to talk to the witnesses um, and bring them justice. 
So where does that drive come from? Are you just a people person or? I think in private investigators are truth seekers, the good ones. There are bad ones. I could tell you story after story. There are bad ones, but the good ones want to find out the truth. And so they'll dig until they get to the truth with me you know, I want to hear what somebody says. And there was a case recently where someone, they were named in a book. It gave a scenario or gosh, a a bad light to them. For years, they've been in that book, maybe 20 years, maybe 10 years. We went and talked to that person. It was so far from the truth. And I thought, how sad. You can't get that stuff off the internet you're in a book and the author is dead. So you can't get any revisions and you're known as this big bad wolf. First of all, they're a human being. Secondly, someone has labeled them incorrectly and they've lived with it ever since. And they don't know how to get it resolved. In that particular case, they can't. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how... Sometimes when it comes to talking about a case or describing a case, whether it's in the media or even when it comes to law enforcement and their, I mean, the treatment of witnesses and seeing them as, you know, real people and understanding that they do have feelings, I think is very important. Is it often missed? Is it often one of those like oversights where we just want the facts and we're not really considering the fact that they are people, we're just getting information from them? first of all, is keep in mind, they did not ask to be at that place at that time to watch someone get shot or stabbed. So they're in a bad situation starting out. So I keep that in mind. They didn't want any part of it. So when you approach them, you have to know that This is not something they thought, hey, I want to wake up and be at this bus stop and see someone shot. Also, They're scared to get involved, and I deal with that more than anything. So I have cases that are 20 years old or 10 years old. They haven't told anything to anybody, and they hold the key. But because they're scared of the perpetrator or someone else, they haven't told that one thing. And over and over, we hear, I've never told anybody this. I need to make a ringtone because it just comes up so, so often, huh? Well, it comes up not very often, but when it does, you know, you have the trust of the person. And there are some cases that are so horrific that we've dealt in, that we've all worked in. And when I say we, I work with other private investigators. We're not part of the same company. We just help each other out. I don't believe ever going into an interview alone. I think that's a mistake. And we take a lot of time basically going through to see who do we send in, male, female? Who are they going to talk to, a male or female? Do they have mommy issues? Do they have daddy issues? Those are things to, to look at to see who they'll open up to. You know, I'm very... Believe it or not, because I can be so rude, I'm very, (laughs) I am so nice to people in these interviews because I do keep in mind they don't want to be there. They may have the information that we need. Yeah, so you give them the benefit of the doubt. 
they were just in the in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's the thing, like depending on how you actually interact with them, that could determine the amount of information you get from them. It's funny when you show up at people's homes. I'll tell you this about Texas. Do not go knocking at a door after eight o'clock at night. We never show up at eight o'clock at night. In other states, not a problem. Texas, you need to be very careful. There are so many small details that we go through and so many checks and balances. Not only do I do that, and then I, I bring it to the group and say, hey, guys, what do you think? You know, is this the right thing? And then we discuss, no, we think this person should do it. And there have been situations where I'm like, okay, you need to fly to, let's say, New York to do this interview. And something happens and that particular investigator can't go and we have to send somebody else. And it turns out to be a better interview after hours of picking that particular person. One of my investigators is a celebrity stalker. (laughs) Sorry, I need to make sure I say this right. He's an investigator for stalkers that basically think celebrities are in love with them. So they think, oh, wow. oh I, they looked at me at a concert. They're in love with me. Wow. Heard of that happens. There's been a few public cases where that has happened. So he investigates. So who's his client, essentially? He <laughs> works for the celebrity that's being stalked. They'll have somebody that shows up at, let's say, one of the award shows and they're trying to get in or get close. There have been situations that actually he and I both worked where a celebrity stalker was able to get very close to the person. And then the next year, he and I were brought in to make sure that didn't happen. We made sure that didn't happen. You cannot imagine what somebody who thinks you looked at them and you're in love with them and they've just got to show up at, let's say, the Oscars. They'll go to a lot of different avenues to get close to you. You just have to be careful they don't have a knife or a gun. I mean, how scary is that? I don't know his clients because we're very careful about that. But if I work with him, I obviously know him. The lengths that he takes to make sure everybody's safe, especially his client. So I know some of these cases can be really, really rough. And, you know, what we might see if we watch Criminal Minds or CSI or any other show, maybe even worse than what we see there, right? I mean, it could be completely different. And I think that, you know, a lot of times when people are interested in in true crime, right, they they this fascination with these these murder cases. But in reality, it's much worse, right? When people are writing TV shows, do you really want to scare the public that bad and tell them what really happened in a case? Yeah, probably not. The thing is, and you brought up a lot of people into true crime. I think that some people read novels and figure things out. It's great. I deal with the families, the real people that I guess a novel's made out of or a show. There are so many emotions and a lot of people will call and say, 
you know, do you want to be a part of this or that? They don't realize those open up wounds every time they talk about it. There is a family member missing at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and all the holidays. That'll never come back. And they may have been stabbed or shot. Who wants to go out there and constantly talk about it unless you can make changes? And I'll say I love the clients I work with because they pay it forward. Once we get their case resolved, they'll help with the next people. And those those people will help with the next people. Is that something that I guess you you use as a tool to help solve cases? Is that different from any other private investigator, the fact that your clients help with future cases? I only know how I do it. Okay. I, I don't know. So I believe in what is called crowdsourcing justice. I believe in the mom who has the four boys that is so smart can look at something and go, wait, y'all missed this. So I have a little small group that we work on cases and we review them. We talk about them. We find things. The victim's family, they don't have people helping them. So they're very involved in it. Now, can we do something with all of them? No, we can't. We can work when we can. Sometimes the caseload or we're in trial or, you know, we're out of town for a month, things stop. In terms of working with the families, curious, how do you actually strike that balance in, you know, as a professional in terms of how much deeper can you go in the investigation, but also keeping in mind their mental health and also yours? Because you seem to be a very compassionate person. So I'm sure you don't want to go in and ask questions that are going to make the family members upset. So it's an interesting dynamic. Actually, I have a process of how I pick my clients. The first thing is, do they have a case? Not every case is a homicide. So a lot of times we'll review the files and then decide it appears there's enough evidence to move forward. At any time, if a family doesn't tell us everything, we won't work with them. At any time, if we find out it is a suicide versus a homicide, we stop immediately. All the information we get, we turn over to the proper authorities. What they do with it is up to them whether they move on and do an investigation or sit on it. That's actually really interesting. It reminds me of the Lauren Agee case. You know, was it an accident or was she murdered? I mean, and and the investigation in itself seemed to be lackluster. Like they seemed to botch the investigation, law enforcement. But it seems like there was so much more to the case and you, you took on the case. I did. And Sherry Smith is the example of a badass mom that can handle the highs and lows. And that woman has been kicked in the stomach and face over and over. And she keeps getting up. I respect her so much. She doesn't lose faith in the process. She's basically told to shut up and stand in the corner. We don't want to hear from you anymore. I always have my money on Sherry Smith. Yeah, I mean, listening to from those season one for you, I believe, from your your podcast. And right. 
just listening to the interviews and, and, you know, that were conducted with people, I guess, who were also there at the location at the time. And even the law enforcement, I think it was the depositions with, was it sheriff's deputies and even the sheriff. So just the way that they handled the investigation, I'm wondering what it's like working with different law enforcement, whether it's the sheriff's department or local law enforcement, you know, just like a town police department or county police department. The level of expertise that they have seems to vary even, you know, within a state or within even just the the whole country in terms of the level of investigation experience and knowledge that they have in terms of investigating, especially homicides. There doesn't seem to be a lot of money for training. And you get into a rural area and Bubba's dad was the sheriff and now Bubba's the sheriff and Bubba's son's Bubba Jr. is going to be the sheriff. And none of them have gone to homicide training. They walk up, make the decision, and then you get the DA who's Bubba's cousin. So you have that. And then you get the judge, who's the second cousin of Bubba. So if something happens in that town, you have no training, you're not going to be able to go from sheriff to DA to judge. You're not going to be able to follow that process. Do I think it's just in Lauren Agee's case? No, it's all over. What I do or what we do, we're not, I'm not an attorney. I'm, I just hold the family's hand through the process. And in Lauren Agee's case, after we saw the judge first or second time, I told the family to pull the plug. They would never get justice in that courtroom. And now that judge has been uh, voted out, which is a good thing. But you don't know who you're getting in that position for these families, these victims. It's a wrongful death case. You don't believe you're going to get them arrested or anything. The families that I work with that go through that process, they just want to know the truth. That's all we're ever looking for. So when I get an investigations, I am looking at the investigation. There are many, many hours I've taken on death investigations. So I look and think, okay, did they do this? Did they do that? Now, I also understand crime scenes are awful. The smell of certain things, the visual of certain things, the police are human beings, but they're also professionals that chose that position. So do the checklist, write the report. If you think that there is a suicide, be able to prove that theory. If you think it's a homicide, prove that theory. The number one rule is it's a homicide until you prove otherwise. And in the cases I get, it's usually, oh, it's a suicide. And then you go through the process of going up the chain to a medical examiner. And the medical examiner They're supposed to look at the body and the evidence, but we know from Lauren Agee's case from a former Nashville police officer who said, you walk into the medical examiner's office and whatever you say is what they write down. Mm, That's not their job. Yeah, they're supposed to actually like, you know, examine and and prove a, a cause of death. What I love about the families in Tennessee is that they have 
started to band together and the group is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What I believe will happen is there's power in numbers. This group bought a billboard where the DA is and show every person that's unsolved death on that billboard. Do you think that's effective? Yes. Yeah, that that sounds like a really powerful tool. More so than the legal system. I guess when it comes to working with law enforcement in, in the capacity that you do, how helpful are they? In Lauren Agee's case, there were two police officers that were fantastic, that immediately understood what was going on. Had it been moved so many feet over, they would have been in charge of the case. However, it fell into Patrick Ray was the sheriff and Jeremy Taylor's jurisdiction. The sad thing is, the one that spoke out the most is no longer in law enforcement. The rumor was he was told his career was over after working with me. I don't know if that's true or not. So, I mean, he did really great work. And then in the end, he, wow, he lost his job, I assume. Mm, I don't know if he lost it. Or maybe he possibly left. Yeah, I'm not sure. That was the rumor. And I was like, oh, that's not a good thing. Super guy. Absolutely who I want to show up at a crime scene because he's so thorough. And that's the thing. People don't think crime can happen to them. It can. Especially look at the world we're living in. I mean, you go to a church or you go to a a grocery store. You don't know what's going to happen. But you want the people that show up at those crime scenes to have the credentials, homicide credentials. You want them to know the process because that may be the difference of finding the perpetrator or not. Or 30 years later, I go through it and go, what were they thinking? I know you work with a lot of different kinds of cases and a lot of different kinds of people, but what is it about cold cases that you've decided that they're going to be your specialty? Mine from Angie. I know how to do it. It's a template. I just need to fill in where we are at whatever stage. The only thing that has changed the dynamics in that have been podcasting and the media. What do you mean by that? When we went through Angie's case, it was 2010. You didn't have podcasting out there on true crime. Now we used, in Lauren Agee's case, podcasting to get tips. We got tips. In a case I'm doing right now, I'm getting tips because of the podcast. Unbelievable tips. We didn't have that originally. So with that, going public with these cases and sometimes working with the media, there are some great media outlets. Dateline's one of them. You know what you're going to get with Dateline. Dateline has a uh, template, though. They like it to be resolved when they get it. And then you have Keith or Josh sitting across from you and talking to you. But if families in cold cases think that they can get a case resolved. And I mean resolved because you're not necessarily going to put someone behind bars. 
because the perpetrator in a 30-year-old case may be dead or the witnesses may be dead. So again, going through that process, knowing that process, you can find out what happened following the evidence, talking to the witnesses and the people that are still alive, basically using common sense to figure out what happened. And in that case, uh, with cold cases, they're probably also very different. But when does it come to you? At what point, for the most part? When it's a complete disaster. (laughs) Okay. For whatever reason, I get the ugliest, nastiest. It's always a mess. That's when I get them. And those are the ones like, I want that one. From that, I get families that change laws. One mom has a law in Mississippi. It's the Christian law where this is going to shock you. In Mississippi, the attorney general's office allowed autopsy photos to leave their office of this young man. And there are thousands now websites with his autopsy photos on it. It should never have happened. The mom, who is a badass mom, got the law changed where you can't do that. You think, well, this is common sense not to do this. Where's the human aspect of these people that are releasing it from the attorney general's office? They just don't care or it doesn't dawn on them that these are people. Or they're mad at the mom for making such a stink. This is is the way to shut her up. Now, I deal with a lot of I'm going to shut you up. I mean, yeah, you see that you see it in the media, like on TV and and shows. But I mean, for it to actually be real is is kind of something. Yeah. So like what what motives are like, how do they try and and shut you up? Like what is what is something that would happen or that has happened to you? Lawsuits in the Mississippi case. I think it was 13 of us were sued for forty seven million dollars. What the lesson on that was, first of all, the mom and I are very close. We worked very hard to make sure that we were prepared. No matter what happened to us, we couldn't win in court to save our lives. And then we went into depositions You know, it's a funny thing when you go into deposition, you raise your hand and swear to tell the truth. And interesting enough, if you don't tell the truth, then I believe a private investigator is going to have the documents to show you did not tell the truth. That's a problem for some people. So then you get into a situation where you're trying to sue someone And you just laid out everything that the families needed. How great is that? I think it's West Memphis 3. West Memphis 3, right, yep. The Dixie Chicks were sued in that case. That particular case, the depositions were gold. And they sued the Dixie Chicks. How dumb is that? (laughs) So you're going to, you have to open up. You've sued somebody. So you have to show everything. Obviously had very good attorneys. They did an excellent job, but that's also a way to shut people down from saying something that might be true. You don't like the narrative, sue them. 
<laughs> now, what's interesting about that, you have to wonder what attorney's going to take that case. Hmm. Yeah, actually. And will it hurt that attorney for the rest of his life? Or, you know, people flock to him. You just wonder in the West Memphis three, what happened to that attorney that filed it? Did they not think? I mean, there's a lot of attention on Amber Heard's lawyer right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I stay, here's my little secret on my well-being is I stay out of everybody's cases, but my own. So I don't know anything about it, nor do I want to. Yeah. I can't help but like see it. It's just, it's, it's everywhere. I just, it's like a train wreck, right? Ridiculous. It, it's 100% a train wreck. You want to look away, but just can't, <laughs> you know, you're just talking about how, you know, you stay out of cases going on because you have a lot going on, you know, on a daily basis. So like what helps you personally it, deal with these very difficult cases? And yeah, you know, you do bring justice to your clients, which is amazing. Um, what about when you're not able to? When I'm not able to give him justice? So do you, so I guess in terms of, I guess that, so, so then maybe the question is, you know, what do these families talk about as justice? Is it like solving the crime? My job is to find out what happened. Following the evidence will tell you what happened. You have crime scene photos, you have witness testimony, you put it all together. My job is not to get someone arrested or put away. That is the judicial system. That's up to other people. I think one of the questions you might be leading towards is what do I do for my mental health? Yeah. You have to have a way to shut it down. You know, you just do self-care. I have a close-knit friends. I love my family. I have a fantastic husband. You know, those are the cliche things. But when my husband walks in, he knows I may be available tonight or I may not be. And he just does his thing without guilt. And if I had someone who came in and expected a dinner on the table, and I'm a terrible cook, so he never expects it. He always goes, oh, I'm good. But if I had that pressure on top of everything, I couldn't get anything done. Oh, come on. You can't be that bad at cooking. I am. It's, it's, I am. Yeah, my kids, I still wonder how they grew up okay because <laughs> they, the ragu stock back then, if I burned it, I put ragu on it all the time. And so oh. I always had uh, a shelf full of ragu. That's funny. That's <laughs> they really probably funny. like um, got as much as they could in school lunch, right? <laughs> or so. <laughs> well, oh, they were well lunch. fed, trust me. But, you know, it's. It's funny because they can't have ragu anymore in their lives. I have a <laughs> who's like a vegetarian. He he won't, you know, eat any meat now or ragu or spaghetti or chili or anything. So that's funny. You you've traumatized it for them, huh? <laughs> I have done that, actually. <laughs> My husband and I travel. We'll go away for a week or two or just go see somebody. I would like to say I don't work, but I do. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask, like, you know, how do you turn it off, or when, you know, 
because, you know, in reality, yes, like the work day is over, right? And you go home, but there's still things that pop up, right? Like there's there's tips, there's there's like a break in a case. And then so do you, are you able to just turn it off? And I I mean, I I feel like the answer is no. The answer is no. 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 <laughs> we do a trip out of the country and that's probably the only time phones are off. Wow. And that's it. I have other people that back me up. I mean, I have such a close group of friends. And believe me, I'm not easy to be around or be with because I'm a little too blunt and honest. I've had these friends for as many years as I have is a miracle. Well, I think we all need friends like that, right? You don't want the friends who are just going to be, yeah, 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 you're doing the right thing. No, no, you're not each and every single time. So my, yeah, I'm usually that friend that tells it like it is being dyslexic. I'll say words the wrong way. And I just did a recording and one of them, we were both on there, Danielle, who is, she's my right-hand person investigator. And I was trying to learn to say this word. And I was like, damn it, the witness can say the word and I can't say it. We were laughing so hard. She has to enunciate for me, but it's hard for me to say certain things. It's really interesting because you speak so well and um, you have a really good like public and public persona. I mean, Zoe and I were talking about this earlier, how, you know, just you have a very, I mean, you've been in the public for, for some time, right? So I don't know if I'm in the public. People may know me because I did a lot of the shows, you know, my with Lauren Agee trying to get that one moved along and uh, Jonathan Cruz, of course, the Andriacchio case in Mississippi, obviously Angie's case. I read, which my number one rule is never read the comments, but I read the comments. I have the and same rule. Yeah, it's just, you know, people, <laughs> people sitting behind a keyboard says things and I'm like, you have no idea what it took to get to this moment. You don't know that I could work at McDonald's for the price that I charge people. And this person wrote, I'm in it for the money. And I thought, dude, if this is for the money, I'm not making enough. It's okay. It's my decision to work the hours and not overcharge families. But they also said, oh, she's in for the fame. If I have to go on Dateline to get a case on there, is that somebody going for the fame and money? Because Dateline sure doesn't pay you. But I, the, I would that's not that fame. No. Things that people say, I'm like, wow, what are you doing in the world that makes it better? Probably not a lot or anything. The, yeah, the work you do is clearly making a difference in the lives of families um, and victims. I hope so. But I also believe that the nurses or the doctors or the EMTs and, you know, I appreciate other people. So I don't think I'm anything more than helping someone. And my journey is to help somebody. That's it. True. But they do already get a lot of love. Your kind of people don't. So my gonna, people don't. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna my people get hammered. <laughs> yep. Yep. So so we're gonna throw some love back at you. 
Um, <laughs> I call the PIs that you're talking about. Dan does dirty deeds. That's not my <laughs> What? <laughs> Those are the ones that are like putting trackers on someone's car. Yeah, yeah like the, the extreme. Yeah. The, the ones that are in the Hollywood movies and they make great characters, you know, but most investigators want to do a good job and do the right job. You know, it's, we just want to know what happened. And when you want somebody fighting for you, if something happened to you. Yeah. I want to say one thing that I think is important when I think of these families, you have to stop and think they got a phone call or a knock on their door and their life. And I say this without warning, stopped and changed forever. The person that they thought they were going to see tomorrow or the next day or have a phone call isn't going to be there. I never forget that they had that moment. And then later, they don't get the resolution or investigation from the police, police department, police officer, and they're victimized there. And then they may get an attorney that only cares about getting the money and they miss deadlines and they don't turn in briefs or motions. I don't know what they're called. They're victimized there. And then they go to a judge and the judge ridicules them over and over. This family gets victimized. And all you think about is they were shot in a bathroom or they were shot in their bed or whatever the case may be. They were burned. I mean, whatever that horrific moment was for people to attack the families or say that they're wrong for asking that question. Put yourself in that person's shoes. You don't want to be part of that club. I am very cut and dry. When I talk to families, when I ask them questions, you just have to lay it out for me. We spend hours going over the case. If there is any inappropriate behavior, I stop immediately on that case. And I will call the person, the family member, and say, can't work on the case because that case is now tainted and that affects every single case around me. I have people that we've had to break ties with and that is unfortunate. And you look at it and think, oh, if only this didn't happen. You don't intimidate witnesses. You don't do those kind of things. That's important to know that um, that's also part of your criteria criteria in terms of selecting the client. <laughs> that is part of my criteria. You do not you do not reach out to the person that you think is a suspect and say we're coming for you or we're going to do this wow. to you. Oh my god. <laughs> I just I don't even think I would have imagined that yeah, I didn't even think that that would that somebody would do that. It's not necessarily the family, it could be somebody, a friend. Right. But wow. again, yeah, no. We don't need to do that. So what would you be doing if you weren't a private investigator, Sheila? Great question. So I am not 20 years old anymore. You're not? And yeah, I know it's shocking. You know, those questions are coming up in my life. You've got to figure out, okay, how many years can I do this? 
my goal is to have so many people out there that utilize what they learned from me, turn it into their own method and do good. And I hope that I've taught many to do that. I think I have. And then my husband and I sell everything and live on the beach and not talk to anybody for the rest of our lives. <laughs> okay. I like that. That sounds good. Yeah. I would do that. <laughs> on a random island. On a random island, pay it forward. I've already set the world up for good and hang out with my husband, which we are the most boring people on earth. <laughs> really? She <laughs> we don't have to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. I want to play cards at night. I want to watch Wheel of Fortune. Oh, oh God, that sorry. is boring. Yep. I know. Oh, Wheel of Fortune. Fortune is great. But I that cat, Vanna. How? Oh, how can you not? <laughs> and I want to. I want my husband to do puzzles, and I've lived such an adventurous life. But I want other people to do the things that maybe can change the world. I have interns from one of the university and I say to them, I had one start yesterday. I said, I'm going to teach you all this and you need to change the world because it's up to her. She is 20. She can go in and make the changes. I can't anymore. And plus she's a woman. She's it's still not easy. And she asked me, she goes, um, how is it being a woman doing the work you do? And I said, it's still not easy. You're not respected. You're considered a housewife. If you're a housewife, love it. My family probably would have really appreciated it. <laughs> you know, I'm a white female. She's a black African-American, beautiful child. I said, it was harder before, but there are so many women that have gone before you. It's going to be easier, but it's not as easy as men. And you better work 10 times harder than any man in any organization you work, you work in. So that's your legacy. I hope so. Yeah. I've got some great interns out there right now sending me, one sent me a text this morning. She goes, are you proud of me? And I said, no, I expect you to do that well. You should be out there doing a great job. You know better. Actually, I am proud of her, to be honest. But I don't want her to think mediocre is the new excellent. Mm. And that's not good enough for me. Yeah. You're excellent. This one is excellent. That's great, though. I mean, it really is. And do you, I mean, so do you have a lot of female interns? And do you have a lot of females that work with you? Yes. And yes, okay. I also work with men. I have, of course. you know, some of the funniest, what I consider chauvinistic, they don't think they are men. <laughs> it's always hilarious to me that the former law enforcement people call and want to work with me. I hear it over and over or they'll call wow. me. Yeah. So, yeah, they say, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we use techniques that people don't realize you know, we, how we get our jobs done. Interesting. Can you elaborate? Um, you know, I use, uh, 
I use animation. You say that person was shot this way. We spend a lot of time and effort and measurements and physics to see if it can be done. We spent days at a location. Y'all, there is an apartment complex that I measured every inch of it because you need it in an animation. Now, technology is taken over. Thank God. And there's a Pharaoh machine. So we can hire someone to go in and it's done perfectly. How happy am I? (laughs) That's like so high tech. It was pretty amazing. So, you know, there are tools. I try to keep up with, you know, what's the coolest thing going on and see if it works. There are some things that have come through and you're like, yeah, that's ridiculous. That didn't happen. You can't use that. So it's like it's it's like in between Inspector Gadget and Ellery Queen. I feel like it's like it's, it's that nice like middle ground of like using technology, but then also using just your, you know, just your brain and and figuring things out like with the facts. Yes. Just the facts. That's all we're ever looking for. Just the facts. Your friend would have been proud. Definitely. You do amazing work. You really do. Thank you. You do make the world a better place. So I'm working towards that beach then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that boring life with the cards and Wheel of Fortune. Um, so I love Wheel of Fortune, so that's not boring. Thank you, Vanna. How do you <laughs> yeah, not love what? Vanna? She's been on forever. I mean, really. She's beautiful. That figure of hers? Gosh. Yeah, it's been years, and she's, like, still. She looks great. Yeah, something's off about that. <laughs> I feel like they're just replacing her. Like, how can you look like that after, what, 40 years? Oh, that's funny. What's so funny about me watching Will of Fortune is, and I say this to my kids, that's torture every night for 30 minutes. <laughs> because I'm just like, I think differently. And that's what helps in cases. Um, that, you think yeah. differently as in like, is your mind mostly on, Is are you cynical? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> So instead of it's like a piece of cake or something, it's um, I don't know, in Wheel of Fortune. Poison in that cake. (laughs) Poison (laughs) in the cake. You know, I had a friend of mine whose wife passed and he started dating. And so, of course, I call and go, okay, let's see if she's a serial killer before you get too involved. (laughs) I do that with my friends. I'm like, let's just let's analyze this first. Yeah, let's Google them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, you can find a lot on Google right now. So y'all Google tells everything. You don't <laughs> need anything else but Google. It's a little scary. Um, so, you know, in terms of like the high tech information, you know, the high tech gadgets that you use, I, I'm guessing you start with like a simple open source, open source intelligence. Right. And then go from uh, there. Of course. Now I don't. I have my group. I like FOIA's Freedom of Information. Ooh, I like those. I like the investigation, but no, I don't like open source sitting in front of a computer for hours looking up somebody. Somebody else is going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice that, yeah, you have different people for different, you know, 
yeah. tasks or expertise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they're all amazing. I thank you all for having me on. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you. I hope, I hope you change the world too. Hope so. We'll try. Thank yeah. you. We'd like to thank Sheila Waisaki for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to talk with us. She's currently a licensed private investigator in Tennessee and Texas. She also has a podcast called Without Warning, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about her work, check out her website, SheilaWaisaki.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bound by the Cloak. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts.